0: Thank you, worship team. and uh, appreciate the ministry of music and truths to us, through song. Thank you. And uh, thank you, I don't know if Stan's still around, but thank you, Stan, all those see children's uh, uh, workers. Uh, I really appreciate hearing uh, our children sing the truths, and it's, uh, it's uh, our hope that we can uh, pass on to them the, the joy of of knowing uh, the Savior, as they have sung in the songs uh, this morning, and pray for them, uh, pray for uh, the ministry that our lower division ministry, as well as the, the parents who raise those kids. Uh, it's a, it is a it's an impossible task, but by the grace of God, we do it. Uh, just want uh, <clears throat> to on this uh, Christmas Sunday, just want to extend. Uh, Merry Christmas to all of you. If uh, I don't get to see you maybe on Christmas Sunday, if you don't have any plans on Christmas Sunday, you'd like to worship with us, we'll be having our Christmas Day service here at 9.30 a.m. And by the way, if you haven't already, please, uh, our pastors have put out our Christmas cards. Uh, they're out on the lunch table outside, so be sure to grab some uh, before they all run out. Quantities are limited, okay? Quantities are limited. So act fast. <laughs> Anyways, uh, uh, if you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke chapter nine verses fifty one through sixty two this morning. And this is a not is an atypical Christmas passage. It's not really a, a Christmas passage, but it is. We are still just working our way through Luke, and and hopefully we can see that even this passage, in light of uh, of the significance of the birth of Christ. Luke nine fifty one through sixty two. When we'll read the text within, this, within uh, the sermon this morning, let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Father, through your word, show us the significance of our, of our Christ, of our Savior and Lord. Help us to learn from his words, to learn from him the, the kind of life that he lived, the kind of life that we are called to live. Help us to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ as you equip us with your word, and especially as we look forward in a few days to, uh, to the commemoration of the birth of, of your son, we pray that you would cause us as your people to be filled with the joy and the awe of the birth of our Savior and the birth of our, of our God, your son. We pray that in, uh, as we worship and respond in worship, that we not only we'd worship you, but that you would cause us to worship by, by telling others, about the joy that it comes because of Christ. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for our time, and pray your spirit lead us, guide us into your truths, and do a work in each one of our hearts, Lord. Uh, help us to uh, understand what it means to follow after you. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, uh, we celebrate the birth of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, and, uh, and I hope it is a time of joy for you. Uh, just uh, even in our Sunday school class that we just came out of, I would I really appreciate the devotion just reminding us of what is the Christmas spirit. And I was just like, oh, what's well, a really profound idea. And you just ask yourself, we t- use that phrase, oh, I'm, I'm in the Christmas spirit. You're in the Christmas spirit. Are you in the Christmas spirit? Have you got the Christmas spirit? What does that mean? You know, uh, well, the just I uh, was encouraged that the Christmas spirit is a, is a worshipful response to the significance of the birth of our Savior, the one who came to die on the cross for our sins. That's, that's the Christmas spirit. So if you have a worshipful, hopefully you have that Christmas spirit, you have a worshipful heart in response to the birth of a son. Anyways, I hope you do, but the, if even if you don't, I want to just remind us that the incarnation, the, the taking on the form of man, of the son of God, is a story that, that captures our hearts and minds. It is an, a, a wonderful story. It tells us of how the creator of the whole universe becomes a part of creation when he takes on human flesh. The one who made all things becomes one with us, mankind. And when he came as a, into our world, the sovereign God came as a helpless babe. We might have expected, if the creator of the world came, into, uh, came to us, that we would expect that the world to respond in gratitude, thankfulness. Oh, thank you for making us. Thank you for creating this world. But instead of the world welcoming him or worshiping him, the world rejected him. And crucified him. But that's not all. As we know in the story, the Son of God is is the all the sovereign all-knowing God. And he knew all that would befall him on this planet, in his short brief life on earth. He knew everything that would take place, from his betrayals to his rejections to his death, to the separation upon on the cross, the punishment of God poured out upon him. And knowing all that, the amazing thing is he still came. How many of us, knowing that that was before us, that we are going to be rejected, you go, you're going to have a Christmas party. If I told you, at the Christmas party, you're going to get rejected. No one's going to want to talk to you in fact, they're not even going to uh, treat you nicely. They're going to treat you meanly. You won't even get a gift, not even a piece of coal. How many of you would show up at that Christmas party? Not, any, not me, okay? Don't invite me to that kind of party. But Jesus, knowing that that's how he would be treated, came. Came because of his love. Jesus came and was born with a mission. Understanding his mission. He knew that when he he was born, he was born to live and die for our sins. Jesus came into our world not to head to a throne to be worshipped and glorified, but to head to a cross where he would be scorned and crucified. Our passage today reminds us of this truth. It marks a turning point in Jesus' earthly ministry. It's a three-year ministry. It's about two and a half years into it. And up to this point, his ministry has been primarily in Galilee, the northern part of Israel. But now he heads towards Jerusalem. And it is an inevitable journey, as we'll see in the text. And as he heads to the cross, he calls his disciples to follow him. And what that meant for his disciples then is still... What it means for his disciples today. That Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. What does it look like to follow Jesus? Most of us here would, be, would say we are believers in Jesus Christ. I follow Christ. You follow Christ. But what does that mean for our daily living? We learned something of what this meant back in nine, chapter 9 verse 23. When Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We learn that Jesus calls us to a life of self-denial, sacrifice, and submission. Like our Savior, we are called to bear a cross that daily and follow him. Today's passage really further teaches us what it looks like to be people who deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. And as we look at this passage, we'll see that there are two characteristics of a cross-bearing life. Two characteristics, two qualities that we should find in those who take up the cross and follow Jesus. There are two passages that are kind of, they're actually chronologically not related. Though in the text, Luke puts them there right after one after the other. But they're thematically related, as we'll see. And So hopefully, as we look at these two characteristics that should characterize those who follow Jesus, we will examine our own lives and that we'll find that we too manifest these qualities. And for sure, we'll see these qualities in the one whom we follow. All right, so let's look, take a look at the text. First, the first thing that should, qual- that should characterize those who take up our cross and follow Jesus is that those who follow Jesus are characterized by mercy, by mercy, I'm not sure about some of you, but uh, I would not classify myself as a merciful person. Uh, Some of you maybe, very merciful, kind of kind, really generous kind of people. I I generally don't know if I would call myself a merciful kind of guy. But nevertheless, the scriptures call us to be merciful, to have mercy, to to be characterized by this mercy as we see in our text this morning. Look at verses 51 to 53 of this passage, 51 to 53. Let's read it. When the days were approaching for his ascension, as Jesus' ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. For they, but they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. The first uh, three verses gives us the setting. Verse 51 is the key verse. It's a key, it's a key turning point in the, in the whole uh, gospel. As it reveals that Jesus intentionally headed to his death. The phrase, the days were approaching. Really, literally you could say, the days were fulfilled. And it conveys this idea that these moments, these times, this, this event is not an accident. It's a fulfillment of God's plan. The days were fulfilled for his ascension. By the the foreknowledge of God, his predetermined plan, God had ordained a day when Jesus would ascend back to home. He would return back to heaven. Now Luke, notice he puts it in terms from the other side of the cross, after the cross. He says the days are approaching for his ascension. He already knows that Jesus has, has risen from the grave and has ascended back to the Father. But it is nevertheless, as the days were approaching for his ascension, it is also before the cross, it is Jesus approaching the days for his death as well. And nevertheless, as he was, Jesus was approaching the days that were set forward for him, were approaching for his ascension, his death and resurrection and ascension, notice that Jesus was determined to go. He was set on going. Literally, the 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 words in the Greek are, he set his face toward Jerusalem. It's like if you want to, if you want to go, if I want to go to my office, I'm not going to go walk like this. You know, I, I'll probably get hurt along the way. But I will set my face towards my office and walk there. You get the idea. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, and that he intended to go to Jerusalem. He was determined to go. He was intent and purposeful in going. One could almost call this an. And keep in mind, he knows this is happening. He's going to go there to die. What does it take to go someplace knowing you're going to die? Some call this divine grit. From this point to Luke chapter 19, verse 27, Jesus is on the road heading to Jerusalem where he would die. And yes, he would rise and where he would ascend. But this was the reason that he was born. Jesus was born. To die for our sins. And as he headed to Jerusalem from Galilee, the road would take him through, inevitably, Samaria, it says. And it was uh, to go through Samaria from Galilee to heading to Jerusalem was the most direct route. And you probably learned this somewhere in your some of your Sunday school classes. Though it was Often on occasions, Jewish people would travel all around Samaria. They wouldn't want to go through Samaria when heading to Jerusalem. The reason being that Samaritans and Israelites, well, they didn't really get along. And we see that here with Jesus. Messengers are sent by Jesus ahead of him to make arrangements. And the arrangements needed to be made because Jesus is not just traveling by himself. He's traveling with 12 other guys, at least. But there's probably... About at least a crowd of at least 70 more people because he's going to send out 70 people two by twos in a little bit in the next uh, passage. So there's a good crowd. There's there's probably a crowd again following along with him. And they're heading through Samaria. They're heading to to Jerusalem. Though the messenger sent to make arrangements, the Samaritans, it says, did not receive him. They didn't welcome him. They didn't say, they did not open the, roll out the red carpet for him. They told him basically, go somewhere else. We don't want you here. They didn't want Jesus. They didn't want his disciples. They didn't want the crowds of people who followed him. And I'm not sure what the particular economy that they had there, but even if you didn't have a, if you, if you had a few, you know, a few uh, inns or hotels, you'd think they would at least want the money that would come through a visit of a crowd of people coming through, you, through your town. But they didn't want the money. And we're told the reason. The reason they didn't welcome Jesus was because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Samaritans did not like Israelites. But they especially did not like Israelites when they were traveling to Jerusalem. Because this, it highlighted a sore point between the two groups. The conflict between Samaritans and Israelites was basically a religious one in nature. It was always boiled down to religion. Samaritans were the descendants of Jewish people who had intermarried with uh, the, uh, some of the Assyrian uh, 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 and foreign people that were brought into the land in the, during the captivity. And so, true Israelites or pure Israelites were considered them these Samaritans as basically half-breed traders because they not only were intermarried with pagans, but then they they also were. Intermarried with the enemy, and they were considered unclean, spiritually unclean. And that made, it gave rise to a disagreement about, in fact, where they could worship. The Israelites, of course, worshipped in the temple in Jerusalem, on the Mount, Temple Mount, while the Samaritans worshipped on their own mountain, Mount Gerizim. There was enmity between these two groups. They did not like one another. They did not talk to each other if they could help if they could help it. Do you recall how Jesus responded when he met a Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter four? He spoke to her. A woman that probably even the Samaritans probably didn't talk to unless they had to. But he spoke to her out of mercy and kindness. He spoke to her out of love and compassion and mercy. He extended to her the reality, the truth of who he is, that he is the Messiah. And he came to, to offer salvation. And though Jesus extended mercy to the Samaritans, in fact, she then went on, the woman at the well went on to tell her own town folk about who Jesus was. But at this point in his ministry, The Samaritans do not reciprocate. They don't show kindness to Jesus. The Samaritans rejected Jesus. They rejected his disciples. And this, as far as the Gospel of Luke goes, is the beginning of this increasing rejection. As Jesus heads closer and closer to Jerusalem, he will face more and more rejection. Eventually, he would be rejected, not just by Samaritans, but by his own people, the Israelites. Naturally, Jesus' disciples are indignant. They respond to this rejection, as we see in verse 54 to 56. Let's look at how they respond. Uh, And maybe some of us would respond this way. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. James and John respond with angry judgment, righteous indignation, right? You refuse me? You know, you know who he is? You know who we are? We're, we, we're the apostles. No, they fight into that. But you know who he is? He's the Messiah. How dare you reject him? Jesus, you want us to call down thunder and, and fire, just consume them right now? Technically, they're correct. Technically, they're correct. By the way, their their idea for this is come, it draws from the life of Elijah in Second Kings chapter one. There, uh, Elijah basically calls down, rains down fire and consumes these uh, these uh, 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 these foreign foreign soldiers. Two groups of fifty, and and uh, the third one cries for mercy and, and is spared. But these uh, James and John are. Are theologically, technically correct. Because to reject Jesus, the Messiah, reject Jesus, the King, is a sin that is worthy of death. If you reject Jesus, you're facing a judgment of death, eternal death. And consistent with, uh, for James and John, consistent with their personalities as sons of thunder, they're called sons of thunder elsewhere in the, in the Gospels. They thought that, well, for these Samaritans, justice should be swift, right? Wickedness should be dealt with. These they should perish. There is no rest for the wicked. Let let them die right now. Some of us are like that too, man. alright? I mean, you see, you read about wicked people, you think, "Oh man, Lord, you strike them down right now." Those people deserve judgment. They deserve your wrath. They should not be allowed to to continue living. That's the same attitude, even as James John. It's not very merciful. But what does Jesus say? He says, oh, yeah, okay, go ahead. No, he it says he rebukes them. He, he corrects them. He says that, that's not the right attitude you're supposed to have. There, there's, a, there's words here, and in, in the New American Standard, they put some words in the brackets. Most of you other translations, they just can leave it out completely. It's because these words are, were not, are not found in some of the oldest New Testament manuscripts. And so these were were most likely not part of the original autographs, but they're included, uh, probably by a scribe, as he was just thinking about uh, some, uh, and may have reflected Jesus' actual words. But nevertheless, the truths in those brackets kind of are consistent with Jesus' words elsewhere, truths about Jesus elsewhere. Because in Jesus' incarnation, Jesus came to do what? Did he come to judge the world? No, he came to save the world, not to destroy it. Everybody knows John 3.16. John 3.17, the next verse says this. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. When Jesus came that first time, he didn't come to judge. Could he have judged? You bet he could have. Did he have a right to judge? Absolutely. Did everyone deserve to be judged? Yes. Yes. But Jesus did not come to judge the world at that time. He came to save the world. From the very beginning of his ministry even, when he read out of Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, he opened the book and he says, I have come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stopped right there because the next verse said, "the day of ve- and the day of vengeance. Jesus did not come to proclaim the day of vengeance. He came to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The day of vengeance would be for another time, a future time. What's more, earlier in Luke, Jesus had taught his disciples to do what about their enemies? To blank their enemies? To to do what? To love their enemies, right? Not to hate their enemies. Luke 6, 27, 28. Jesus didn't come to destroy the lost. In fact, later on, Luke 19, verse 10, he would say that the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus' birth was for the sake of bringing mercy to a world that deserved his judgment. So that those who follow Jesus should also be those who show mercy to a world that still deserve God's judgment. Our world lives at a time when they really need Christians, you and me, brothers and sisters, to be people who show mercy and kindness and love for our neighbor. Our nation, you, kind of, if you especially with the, as the elections will get closer, we become more and more a dangerously divided nation. People, the different sides, they, they villainize each other. We live in what's called a cancel culture. We try to, to cancel out people who don't uh, toe the party line. We, we try to out the dissenters, dox them for public scorn. We threaten shutting down, boycotting people's livelihoods because they don't agree with us. And if you're treated this way, it sure is easy to want to treat others the same way, right? We all want to do unto others as they have done unto us. That's not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught us to do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Our Savior did not come so that we would have hate or judgment upon the world. Our Savior came to show mercy. We must remember that He first showed mercy to us, right? To me, to you. We can't forget that. Sometimes we, I understand the sense of righteous indignation when you see like ungodly people do things. They think, "Oh, that's just that's wicked, that's evil." I feel those. I feel those. That that that. <clears throat> at least for that time moment, a righteous indignation. I hope. But nevertheless, we, we sin when we go beyond and we, we, we go too far when we call upon, when we presume that they deserve God's judgment right there and then. Because for you and me, we are those who deserve God's wrath. No matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how long uh, you have lived a righteous life even as a Christian in the power of the Spirit, you cannot, we cannot forget that you and I still are in and of ourselves, deserve God's wrath, right? It's only because of Christ's covering upon us, only because we believed in Jesus Christ, only because we've trusted in him that we're going to be spared from judgment. Because God has shown us mercy. And we ought to treat others the same way as Jesus treats us. If we say that we follow Jesus, we need to be men and women of mercy. We must turn the other cheek when wronged. We must go the extra mile when called upon. We must bear against other when others sin against us. We must have an attitude of generous mercy and forgiveness towards others, though they'd sin against us seven times, 70 times. One of the most powerful ways that we can show love for our neighbors is for us to show mercy to them. To help when people are down, especially Christmas season, to be patient and kind when they're, when they're mean and when they're ornery to love them even though they are being unlovable people. And when we do this, we, we end up showing to the world what our Savior and Lord did by coming to this world to die for sinners. Jesus came to save, not judge. He came to show mercy, not wrath. And we who follow him ought to seek the same. Lest the Lord would rebuke us as he did, James and John. Our lives should be characterized by mercy. Secondly, to follow Jesus, we're going to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Not only do we have to be characterized by mercy, a desire to see people come to be it saved, but we ought to be characterized by commitment. By commitment, that's point number two. We find in verses 57 to 62, a commitment. A commitment, of course, to Jesus Christ. In this next session, Jesus is on the road still. He's likely, uh, as he's going on the road, preaching about the kingdom of God, calling people to follow him, all, while at the same time performing miracles, healing diseases, casting out demons. But along the way, Luke records for us in this, this passage three brief encounters, three individuals who come up to Jesus and, and express their desire to follow him. Jesus has been calling people to follow me, and these people are going to come up to him and say, I, yeah, I'll follow you. But Jesus, in this text, by the way he responds to them shows that he knows, though, despite what they say, he knows their hearts. We can all say the right things, but Jesus knows the hearts of men. He knows our hearts. He knows what's inside. He knows our motivations. And Jesus, by responding to each of these individuals, he responds to them uh, addressing the, the very the individual obstacle that each of them had in following after Jesus. It's His responses are almost similar to when Jesus responded to the rich young ruler. Remember what he said to the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler would say, oh, I observed all the, I kept all the commandments, etc. And then Jesus told him, well, one more thing. Why don't you sell all your possessions and then come follow me? And we all know that, you know, Jesus didn't ask us all, when we, we interpret that, we don't teach that, well, you need to sell all your stuff and follow him, but you must be willing to. Are you ready to sell all your stuff? Are you ready to abandon it all to follow Jesus? For he knew that that material really. he, he spoke directly to him. And in the same way, he speaks to these individuals with a knowing of their heart and he addresses their hearts. And to, hopefully, as we listen to these, uh, we may, he may address our hearts as well let's look at the first one he calls the, uh, or in in we take all three in totality by the way jesus calls his disciples to a complete and total commitment to the kingdom of jesus christ to the king let's look at the first one jesus first addresses the obstacle of home the obstacle of a home a home can be an obstacle to following jesus We me read this and pick up in verse 57 and 58. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds have, and the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, this statement that the first man makes is quite an admirable statement. If someone came up to me and says, "Yeah, hey, I'm going to follow you wherever you go, I'd say, Wow, that's, that's some serious commitment. You know, that's, that's a, this is a bold statement, a hard commitment. This is, a, this is something that you, you want people to, you know, somebody, this is discipleship material, you know? As we sometimes people say. It almost sounds like Ruth's commitment to Naomi. I will go where you go. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. It's, it's that kind of sense. It's a very strong statement. The man knows uh, what he said. He knows the right things to say. Well, he's a scribe, according to Matthew. The man states he's willing to follow Jesus wherever he goes. Outwardly, that's cool. that's a great statement, but like Peter, who would profess in Luke twenty-two thirty-three that he would go both to prison and to death with Jesus, we know he doesn't. In fact, he runs the way. Jesus knew the heart of this man. He might have said that he knew. That he, he would follow Jesus, he, that he would follow Jesus wherever he would go. But the man, Jesus knew this man, and he knew that a home, the comforts of a home, would keep this man from following him. So he, he answers the man's profession with a, a mind-blowing declaration. He says this, he says, he, he really doesn't uh, challenge the man's statement, but he, this is what he says. He says, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Animals, foxes and bears, they have homes. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now when you think about that, oh, okay, all right. Jesus doesn't have a house, doesn't have a home. But when we keep in mind that what does this statement say to the Jewish culture? The son of man, stop right there, Daniel 7, 13 to 14, the only one who has the the ability to approach the Ancient of Days to receive for him from the Ancient of Days glory, dominion, and a kingdom so that every tribe, every people, every nation would serve him. This guy, the son of man, doesn't have a home incongruous. Again, it's just incongruous. The disciples didn't accept it, and this man is not going to get it either. It's a stumbling block to the Jewish people to say that the Son of Man, the Messiah, would be homeless. They expected him to have a home in Jerusalem, in the temple, on the throne. He would have riches and power. Not this guy that doesn't even have a home. The shock of this statement is like the shock of saying today Jesus is like the homeless people on the street in San Francisco. I know Jesus wouldn't use drugs and you know, all those things. But it's that same shock same, that Jesus would approach as someone who you totally completely did not expect. And that's what Jesus is saying. Huh? The Son of Man is going to come and he's going to have no home. He's going to have nothing. Now this man follows jesus because he thinks that jesus is the messiah right he thinks he is the son of man and he's right but he has the wrong conception of what, of when jesus came he's willing to follow jesus when he is going to have power and riches and authority and a throne and a kingdom and all the glory and dominion all that stuff but is he willing to follow jesus when the son of man doesn't have a place to call home when he's homeless when he's a pauper when he's rejected when he's uh, when he's suffering on the cross as a criminal as he, are you willing to follow Jesus everywhere, even to the cross? What does this mean for his followers then? That at times those who follow Jesus will find themselves, yes, at the very least without a home. We know today, just to read the news, that there are Christians around the world who do, literally don't have homes, have lost their homes, have lost their families because they follow Jesus. And there are others Christians who do not have homes because they sacrifice. They, they sell their homes because they want to follow after Jesus called to be, to be missionaries around the world. But even beyond a literal physical home, more so, those who follow Jesus will find, just as Jesus recognizes, that this world is not our home. It was true from the very moment that he entered this world, when he came as a baby born in Bethlehem, there was no room for him. Like Jesus, we are aliens and strangers in this world. We're just passing through. We cannot think that we're we're residents here, that we're that we're making our, our, our building any kingdom here, building an eternal home here. This is not where our home is. And yes, we we. We are people, as we those who take up our cross and follow him, we willingly sacrifice our earthly comforts for the sake of following Jesus. We will take up that cross and follow him wherever he goes. Because why? Because we know this is not our home. Where's our home? Our home is where Jesus is. That's where that's our home. That's where we're headed. And that's just as a day, there was a day set for Jesus to ascend back to his home, there's a day set for you and me to go to our home with Jesus. We don't know when that's going to be, but that day is set. That's how we need to live our lives on this earth. Jesus came to head to the cross, knowing that that home was through the cross. And brothers and sisters, our home is through the cross as well. Let not the pursuit of any earthly home or earthly comforts keep us from following him. Homes can be obstacles. Not that you can't own homes, not that you can't build a nice little place to live here. But let's not think confuse that for what we why we are here. This is not our home. There's a home that's waiting for us in heaven with Jesus. Second, Jesus addresses another obstacle in verse 59 to 60. And Jesus addresses the obstacle of obligations. Our obligations will keep us from following Jesus as we ought. Verse 59 to 60 we read. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. This is a really hard statement. A lot of people will kind of I don't know exactly how to respond to this one. But let's walk through it. The second man responds to Jesus' call to follow him. And when Jesus says, Follow me, the man says, The man says, it seems willing to follow. But he has a more pressing priority first. He said, Lord, permit me first to go do this. He asked Jesus to allow him to go home to bury his father. In this request. Sure, seems like a reasonable one, right? To go, he's going to go home and bury his dad. It's a, it's honoring his father. In fact, by Jewish tradition, it was a religious duty for a son to bury one's father. You couldn't just let somebody else do it, in a sense. But it was Jewish tradition that he, the son, had to bury their father. Surely, if the man's father was dead, Jesus would understand the desire to go and home and bury him, right? But notice, the man didn't say that his father was dead. If he was dead, and, and most commentators, or good number of comments, believe that the, the man's father wasn't dead. Because if he was dead, this man wouldn't likely be following Jesus around and, you know, listening to him preach. He would have already been home. If his father was dead, he would have already been home taking care of the funeral arrangements. Rather, it is believed that this man wanted to go home and wait until his father died before returning to follow Jesus. Maybe his father was even actively was dying even, but it surely wasn't urgent enough that kept him at home. He, and he did come to come out to, follow, to hear Jesus on the road in Samaria. The problem for this man was really a problem priority, priority. He decided that his own obligation, his own duty as a son, had a greater obligation, a greater priority than his obligation and duty to the Son of God, to the Messiah. See, Jesus' call to follow me is really Jesus saying, put me first, capital M. Right? When Jesus says, follow me, who should be first? Jesus, right? Put me first. But the man's reply was a statement of, me first. Lowercase m. Jesus' reply is profound. This man, he says to this man, he addresses this man who who basically wants to go home, wait for his dad to die, and then to bury him before he can come follow Jesus. Jesus corrects him with a profound statement of priority. He says, let the dead bury the dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Let the dead bury the dead. Really, it's a simple statement. It's, uh, it's Jesus saying, let the spiritually dead, those who are spiritually dead, bury, focus on burying the physically dead. Let those who are spiritually dead worry about burying the physically dead. But for you, those of you who are spiritually alive, those of you who are disciples of Christ, those of you who are followers of me, let your priority be the proclamation of the kingdom of God, the proclamation of the gospel. Because it's the gospel of Christ that saves the spiritually dead. You know, once someone's physically dead, you can't do anything to change their eternal destiny. Scripture says that it is appointed for man once to die, and then comes judgment. You cannot change their their destiny once they're dead. We understand even the desire that we want to mourn and loss, and that's appropriate in its time. But while people are living, you and I can save them by sharing with them the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of who the king is. Therefore, the proclamation of the kingdom of God should be our priority. Even above any other obligations and duties that we have on this earth surely God gives us wisdom to balance them in appropriateness but let's not confuse that the priority of why we're here on earth is not to build a house for ourselves not to do our job at, a, at whatever company we work and not to raise my kids not to go and you know sweep my build you know, my, uh, build a beautiful lawn in my front of my house it's not to travel around the world or whatever obligation, whatever duty you feel that you have in this world. It's not those things, though those are sometimes part of being a human being on this world. It's part of manifesting love for man, love for our neighbors, love for God. But the priority of our lives, as Jesus puts here for this man, real clearly, really straightforward. It says, let the dead bury the dead. Let, let that be their priority. But for you who are spiritually alive, let your priority be about proclaiming the message of life, the message of the kingdom of God. because that's what matters. Don't let other priorities and obligations get in the way of this one priority. Charles Spurgeon is quoted as saying, the world's one and only remedy is the cross. And Jesus' priority when he came was the cross. He was born to, to die for our sins. He came to provide the remedy. So let us who follow him be faithful to distribute that remedy to a world that is dying because of their sins. Lastly, Jesus just addressed the, the, last, uh, the final obstacle, the obstacle of family, verse 61 to 62. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord. Again, very similar, a positive response. But first, permit me, another me first response, to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. The third man states just the similar statement. Again, man, discipleship material, right? Now, I will follow you, Lord. But there's always that, uh but me first. There's nothing, let me add, remind us that there's nothing inherently wrong in what this man wants to do. He wants to say goodbye to his, his family, to his home. Even as the one, other ones, the statement of wanting to bury your father is a good thing. But here's another allusion, by the way, to, to Elijah, the story of Elijah in First Kings 19, verse 19 to 21. When Elijah found Elisha, Elisha was God's uh, uh, chosen replacement for Elijah's ministry. Elijah, Elijah found Elisha plowing a field. He actually had 12 pairs of oxen, and he was he was uh, using them to pull a uh, plow that would you know uh, to uh, in farming a field. And Elijah ran up to him and then cast his mantle upon Elisha to symbolize his calling. But the younger man then t- turned into Elijah and asked him first that if he could go kiss his father and mother, basically to say goodbye before leaving. And Elijah permitted him. So again, so there's nothing wrong with going home and say goodbye. So when this man makes the similar request as Elisha, Jesus knows, however, that the man's heart will be distracted by his family, by his, his, uh, the people at home. He knows that when, some, somehow, some, that when he goes home and to kiss his wife, he won't be able to leave them. He won't be able to put his hand to the plow and, and, and not look back. And so Jesus state, makes this statement basically as a, a correction to this man. No one, after putting his hand on the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. He uses the imagery of the plow. You can't put your hand on the plow and then look back. Now, I know most of us here aren't farmers. Anybody? Farmers here? Okay. All right. Most of us not, right? We're all city folks here. But you kind of get the idea, right? There's some metal thing and pulled by animals, makes a trough, throw seeds, you know. So that's to be straight lines because well, at least when I drive down California, I see lots of straight rows. So they got to, must be straight lines, right? So if you have a plow, I mean, this is manual. It, you you want to you wanna make straight lines, but if I'm like looking this way, looking this way, I'm not going to make a straight line, right, when I'm plowing. That's, just, that's an illustration, real straightforward, basic illustration. It was a, actually almost a, a saying common in those days. You can't put your hand on the plow and look back because if you do, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. You won't make a straight, uh, a straight line for the seeds to be sown. In a similar way, those whose eyes are not focused on following Jesus are unfit for the service in the kingdom. It's a matter of focus. It's really a question of focus. Are you focused on Christ or are you focused on your family? You know, with our eyes, you can only basically focus on one thing. Oh, I can, you know, I can focus here on one of the brothers up here. I'm definitely not focused on the other brother over there. I can see y'all, but I, I'm not focused at you. But you can tell when I'm focused at you, right? Because you feel a little more guilty. Oh, pastor's looking at me. <laughs> I, I, I can tell because you like you kind of wake up. He's looking at me. Same way. You can either focus on God, Christ, or you can focus on your family. It's not wrong to look at your family, take care of your family, but God wants, Jesus wants us to understand that you you cannot focus on both. Certainly you cannot neglect your family. We're called to honor father and mother, provide for our family, etc., But we must either, just like when it comes to money, you cannot serve God and mammon. You really cannot serve God and family. You can't serve both of them as equals. You will either use your family to serve the Lord, or you will use the Lord to serve your family. And i put it this way. A lot of us here are raising families. You know, the children are probably the pride of our lives. I mean, they're joy. They're great joy. But if our lives, are basically the, the, what gives us the greatest joy in life is basically just raise kids and have a happy home and see them successful in life, that is a, that is a, and, and use the Lord's kind of principle so that I can have good kids and a great family and that they all, you know, love the Lord or something like that. You know, if I, if I think of it just for so I have a happy family, I fall short of God's plan for me. I put my focus on my family and not on the Lord. Whereas if I focus on the Lord, I will raise my family, I'll love my family, I'll raise the kids, I'll teach the kids, I'll, uh, I'll point them to Christ so that they too can join me in this great endeavor as a family to bring glory to Christ, right? It's a subtle difference. Both may look the same outwardly, but you can only serve God or you will serve mammon or you'll serve family or you serve something else. Our focus must be on God. Are you focused on Christ? Either you love one or hate the other even. Luke 14, 26, 27, Jesus later would say this, if anyone comes to me but does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And, what, and then he says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Carrying And basically it's almost a parallel statement. What it means to carry a cross and come after him means at times you will, in, comp- in contrast, comparison with loving God, you will, in contrast to that, be hating your family that you put them secondary to following the Lord. A focus on Christ above all else, including family. Just as the children's chorus teaches us, that we've sung when many of us were little children, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Let me end with a conclusion. A story is told of a young man. Uh, his name is William Borden. Yeah, that's probably common. You've probably heard it before. William Borden was a, grew up in a wealthy family. He lived in the early 1900s. And uh, he was a heir to a, a milk company, Borden Milk, I believe. And he was given a world cruise as a graduation gift from high school. And so he traveled around the world at that time. So he had a lot of money. And But along the way, as he was traveling on the world, he, uh, he saw the needs of uh, people in China he felt called to be a missionary there, and so he, he wrote back saying that he wants to become a missionary. One of his friends heard and says, oh no he 's throwing his, himself away as a missionary In response to this, Borden wrote two words in the back of his Bible: "No reserves." He went on to attend Yale where he wrote in, uh, there when he, he wrote an entry in his journal he said he wrote "Say no to self and yes to Jesus every time." You think he understood? That if you want to come after Jesus, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Upon his graduation, his family wanted him to take over the family business. Jobs, that were well-paying jobs were offered to him. He was a graduate of Yale. But he stayed on the course to be a missionary. And it was then that he wrote two more words on the back of his Bible. No retreats. He went on to Princeton Seminary to get his degree in theology. Where he graduated and then eventually joined China Inland Mission because he was determined that he wanted to reach the Muslims in eastern China, he first traveled to Cairo to study Arabic. And there in Cairo at the age of 25, William Borden contracted cerebral meningitis and died within the month. His Bible was found later and somewhere in that time he had written two more words in the back of his Bible. No regrets. For William Borden... To deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me was a life of no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. Brothers and sisters, we may not be called to be missionaries to China or to Cairo, but we are called to be his disciples and disciple makers. We are to be men and women of mercy who love the world and don't seek to judge the world but to save the world. We are to be men and women of commitment who follow Christ wherever he leads, wherever he goes, wherever he, whatever opportunities he brings to our path. And wherever he leads, as we take up our cross and follow him, may our mind be set as William Borden's: no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Let's go out there, take up our cross, and follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our word. Thank you for uh, this challenge. And we pray that, Lord, this this task seems impossible. At times it is difficult. The sacrifice that need to be made when we follow Christ in a world that is that would that is a, a, unfriendly towards uh, the truths of Christ. And Father, but yet we pray that your spirit would fill us and give us the courage and boldness. Help us to f- be bold in following Jesus Christ wherever he leads. That we would not be distracted by a home we want to build in this world. That we would not be distracted by the the, uh, the, uh, the obligations and duties that we have that, in this world. That we would not be distracted even by even by our precious families, but that we would wholeheartedly focus on Jesus Christ and following him so that we would be people who continually reflect the life of our Savior who was born to head to the cross, to die for our sins, so that we, a world who deserves nothing but judgment, would instead receive mercy. God, help us to bring this mercy to the world this Christmas season. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.